0: Why, hello, friends. Thank you for stopping by. And welcome to
1: Dharma Punks NYC. I am Josh, the guiding teacher, Buddhist pastor, and a couple of announcements. If you'd like to attend our retreat from August 31st to September 4th, on ego transcendence the information is also on the website and in the chat so i hope you'll consider one of those times to connect with us and uh if you'd like to support my work venmo is dharma punks with an xnyc like the website the paypal button is on the website and on the podcast page and if you're so inclined there's a patreon which is a small donation you could make if you'd like to support my work every month, entirely what feels right for you and uh, never give more than what is sustainable and doesn't cause stress. So, so tonight's going to be a kind of uh, overview of boundaries, uh, why they're both difficult for us to set and also why they're essential for healthy relationships, how to know when we need to set boundaries, and some uh, tools and insights for setting them. And of course, uh, much of this work is not just due to my practice as a Buddhist pastor, but also um, as uh, working in counseling for so many years. So many of the issues that we address uh, when we connect is uh, often boils down to a lack of clear boundaries and relationships. We are a social species for whom attachment is everything, uh, we're born prematurely that so if we if we waited any longer to be born after nine months our heads would be come too large to pass through the birth canal so we're born as a species wildly prematurely um as babies we require ongoing protection nurturing guidance support and these needs go on for many many years without which we don't survive and so uh Nature rewards bonding obviously with uh oxytocin and many other hormones and there are key regions of both the limbic and frontal lobe which support and encourage bonding, including the limbic region, the hippocampus, insula, hypothalamus amygdala the uh, and in the frontal lobe the Uh, there are roles for establishing attachment as well. Attachment is so vital that we internalize implicit rules to maintain our core attachments. Uh, And these rules are essentially uh, understandings or um, uh, beliefs about what kind of behaviors will change. Uh, sabotage our relationships with our caregivers. Freud called these rules uh, the superego. In psychology today, they're known as schemas and attachment theory. They're known as internal working models. They're largely emotional, uh, strong, debilitating emotions such as shame and guilt, That activate when we've engaged in some kind of behavior that leads to neglect, or uh, a loss of patience in the caregiver, or anger, and these rules that form become the foundations of our conscience. Uh, They are they have no universal uh, truth to them. They're arbitrary to each family system. Some caregivers, for example, reward dependency. Uh, there's shame dependency. Some caregivers reward uh, uh, independence. Some shame it. Some caregivers reward uh, displays of intelligence, other creativity. Some parents reward their children for flirting with them or other people. Some parents shame any sexual display. Uh, Some parents shame uh, gender displays that they feel are inappropriate. Uh, Some parents are uh, homophobic, or biased in countless ways. So the the thing to understand is the feelings that are introjected in us that guide our interpersonal behaviors have nothing to do with a universal truth. They're simply the rule rule-governing behaviors that we adapted to survive and maintain connections with the people who kept us alive. Now, along with our specific attachments, attachments refer to specific individuals. We also have and survive due to our affiliations with groups. We, after all, as a species, survive due to safety and numbers. So we don't only care about how well connected we are to our caregivers. We're also concerned with how uh, well connected we are to our peers, and people like Matthew Lieberman and Naomi uh, Eisenberger and Daniel Bowling and many other neuropsychologists have shown that there's key regions of the medial and dorsal prefrontal cortex that, um, well, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is involved with creating painful feelings when we feel excluded from a group, when our friends have a party and they don't invite us, when we see other kids talking and then suddenly growing quiet when we arrive. And this a very similar region, the medial and dorsal prefrontal cortex uh, whenever other people talk about us or look at us, it's the same region of the brain that creates our egocentric self-views. So our very construction of self and identity, who I am, is basically tied to how well connected, socially accepted, what behaviors lead, to, I believe, to my Uh, social adhesion with others. In other words, I grew up in a Jewish family uh, that prioritized intellectual uh, achievement over any kind of financial achievement. And so at home and in groups of friends, I would never talk about anything other than trying to unconsciously establish myself as a... uh, somewhat bright individual. That was my greatest concern, and that's how I would identify myself, because that's what led to not only the bonds in my family system, but also the bonds with my peer groups. So, uh, um, similar to attachment schemas, we develop a self-presentation, and all of this is to reward attachments. So, Attachments, social adhesion, is so important to us that very early in life we develop what are called coping strategies to minimize tension, and with our parents to minimize disappointment, to minimize stress in our relationships. These coping strategies, and I'll I'll talk about a few of them in a second, but these coping strategies begin very early on where we move from crying and demanding soothing to ways of avoiding conflict or eliminating tension by all means necessary with our caregivers and with our peers. And these strategies are developed in environments where we don't or cannot set boundaries. We can't set limits. As very young children, we can't say to our parents, You're being entirely unreasonable, Dad. I'm going to stay in an Airbnb, and we can talk about this later when you are calmer. So uh, we learn to develop the coping strategies that will help us, um, that will be initiated, the behaviors that will be initiated under stress from times of our life where we couldn't say no, set limits, uh, leave, take breaks we generally develop these coping strategies in relationships where we were in one-down power dynamics couldn't speak up for ourselves and therefore had to use other strategies to get to essentially diffuse tension in our relationships so some of these coping strategies that we that start very young are denial Denying that anything is happening between us and other people, um, emotional numbing via process routines. Very early on in life, children le- learn that they can suppress or soothe feelings of neglect and abandonment, or um, or conflict through behaviors that hijack our dopamine reward system, like w- watching TV gaming, food, fantasy. In fact, any repetitive behavior over time can activate dopamine as a self-soothing mechanism. Some of the ways we also survived our early childhood uh, relations is through what's called reaction formation and fawning. Children will express the exact opposite of their true feelings if that's what it takes to survive. A child that's been abused or or shamed will very often express um, love and fawning attention to the parent that's harmed it and by, as in any means necessary to maintain the relationship. And of course, the most common strategy that we learn early in life as a way to diffuse tension or get our needs met is conflict avoidance. We steer clear of any issues or topics or tasks that could bring Reprehension or negative attention from the caregiver or from our peers. So, some of us very early on learn basically, so long as I don't express my needs in relationships, I'll be okay. So, these coping strategies are adaptive in childhood because in childhood we can't set boundaries, but they become maladaptive in adult life because they take the place of setting boundaries and maturing to a developmental stage where we can say, I'm sorry, but this doesn't make me comfortable. I can't talk about this now. This is not um, meeting my needs. So the signs of that we haven't set boundaries, and I'll talk a little bit about this throughout the talk, but the clearest sign is resentments in our relationships. Resentments are essentially an evolutionary ingrained way that al- al- alerts us to the fact mm-hmm. that we feel unacknowledged, uh, less respected than others. We feel, in a relationship, unequally burdened. We feel unevenly compensated, and, and sadly, in a misogynist culture like ours, um in domestic settings between men and women women are chronically overburdened with household chores and requisites and very often due to our culture feel intimidated from setting boundaries the longer we rely on avoidance the longer we uh put off uh setting boundaries the more vulnerable we'll feel in our relationships, they'll a failure to set boundaries leads to a diminishment of our agency and, especially, of course, our self esteem. And, uh, before I also note uh, tools for setting boundaries, I should note that avoidant individuals, this entire <laughs> tonight's talk is kind of pointless because if you're avoidant or dismissive in your attachment style, you probably are setting wonderful, overly strong boundaries naturally. You're probably running away from intimacy. You're keeping a distance from others. You're avoiding close relationships, and you're not putting up with anything because your earliest Goal in life was to seek distance and to get the hell away from people you you would rely on. So <laughs> this this talk, you can take a break or just out of curiosity, listen to the rest. On the other hand, if you're an anxious uh, individual and in attachments boundaries will boundaries will be excruciatingly diff- difficult because your underlying um, expectation is abandonment. That's been the lack of reliable caregiving was the rule of thumb in childhood. And so to be able to set a boundary, we'll have to overcome the fear of someone saying, well, take it or leave it. I don't care enough about you. If that's what you want, bye-bye. So... um, and also anxious people become so preoccupied in their attachments with one individual, generally the one individual who's not respecting them, that all the other people in their life, they don't listen to. And they don't listen to the feedback. They don't listen to the other people in their life pleading with them to take care of themselves, to minimize their dependence on an unreliable figure. Um, anxious People with anxious attachment tend to be very strongly pleasing and conflict-avoiding because, again, the underlying emotional belief is that the people that are most important to us, Will reject or abandon us. So we have to minimize anything that could complicate relationships. Secure individuals often feel responsible enough to other friends and peers and uh, children and, and other people work in their life that they will set some boundaries, yet they very often struggle to directly address their partner's addictions. And they'll put up with sometimes behaviors that are directly harming to them in silence. So, even if you're secure in your attachment style, I have met uh, many people who are capable of secure attachments and yet at times still struggle setting necessary uh, guidelines in their affiliations. Disorganized individuals, which are children, are the People who in childhood were um, abused, experienced trauma, um, very often have addictive tendencies in their life, have been exposed to so much mistreatment, they'll be unaware <laughs> even where to start. Uh, for them, abusive relationships are the norm. So asking them, in my experience, or talking about setting boundaries can be something at first in therapy that's incomprehensible and very difficult for them to conceive of. Um, So boundaries, I want to uh, emphasize, are subjective. Nobody has right or wrong needs or right or wrong boundaries they need to set. Essentially, boundaries are an acknowledgement of the areas or topics or behaviors that we cannot sustain and maintain self-esteem or that activate a feeling of, 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 that activate resentments or feelings of being taken advantage of and so forth. But if anyone ever says that your boundaries are too much or your needs are too much, they are simply attempting to legislate something that cannot be legislated. Boundaries, when they're met, do shift over time. So sometimes people who've been abused or mistreated in previous relationships who need to take it slow or who don't want to be involved in uh when they meet someone going on long trips with them or want to put off having sex for a while over time, when they feel safe, then boundaries can be loosened appropriately. So they're not, they can be flexible, but it's up to the individual setting the boundaries when to uh communicate that their needs have shifted. Um Boundaries are not about limiting other people's behaviors. It's about controlling what we're going to allow ourselves to be exposed to. In other words, um, even if you're in a relationship with a terrible alcoholic who's killing themselves, you to say you can't drink, uh, while it might be entirely understandable, is not a boundary. A boundary is... Um, I can't be with you while you're drinking. You're not telling the other person they can't drink at all. You're simply saying, if you want to be with me, um, I'm not going to be involved with this behavior. A parent could say to their uh, a child who's a, an addict, to stay in our house, you'll need to take urine samples. That's a boundary. But they won't to say you cannot do drugs is no longer a boundary. It's an attempt to control or legislate other people's behaviors. You might be right, but it's not a boundary. And often it will lead to your boundaries not being respected if you're overstepping. So it's important simply to know what you or I cannot show up for when we're setting them. To set a boundary means we have to be willing to put up with peer ple- pressure and guilt. Um I've worked with so many people who are the children of parents with borderline or narcissistic personality disorders. And no one in my experience has ever set a boundary with a borderline or not a borderline or a narcissist without receiving a a heap of abuse and retribution and angry texts and um threats and uh, being cut off at first. So it requires resilience, which means when you're setting a boundary, it's best to have a community or a group of people that you're holding yourself accountable to and can offer you support. Um, I'd like to emphasize in this talk that boundaries not only protect ourselves, they protect our relationships. I've been married for 22 years And I have a wonderful partner with whom I, you know, don't have to set many boundaries. Hopefully she feels the same, but our relationship would not exist if we didn't have the permission at times to put up the hand and say, I know this is important to you, but I can't talk about this now. I'm overwhelmed. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I can't go there. I need a break. And those are boundaries. It's not saying to the, we're not saying to each other, you're wrong for wanting to talk about this. And I really encourage when we set boundaries to always say, this isn't, you know, if you're willing to talk about it, say, this is important, but not now. How about, and then give a time when you will have the resources. Some topics, on the other hand, we may never want to talk about. And that requires just being very clear. This is a topic I never want to discuss. This is a personal issue for me. But people who, set, who fail to set boundaries in their relationships eventually become so resentful and so embittered that either they unconsciously sabotage the relationship or they punish their partners through passive-aggressive means or they resort eventually to cut off So a failure to set boundaries always leads to an ending of a relationship. It doesn't maintain a relationship, no matter who it is. If you've got a loved one who is an addict and you think that it's safer to not establish boundaries in that relationship, I guarantee you eventually something will happen that will lead to a falling apart. All, bound, all relationships that survive and thrive at some points require saying what our capabilities are and what we can't do. Uh, boundaries do not require explanations any more than needs require explanations. So I don't encourage people to, with a narcissistic father, borderline parent to explain why they're limiting their calls to once a week at a certain time and not responding to texts in the middle of the night, Um, or the same with bosses, I simply encourage saying, I cannot connect unless it's Friday at noon. That's when I'm available You can add in something like, you're important to me, and that's why I'm setting aside that time, but that's a boundary. Having a very set guideline to it, to not threatening or using the nuclear option, it's always, you know, I want to maintain the relationship, but to maintain the relationship, we need to respect each other or respect each other's needs, and that's why I'm only available at this time, or can talk about, the cannot talk about that subject. Um, Again, to set good boundaries, we have to be aware of our internal states, our states of preoccupation with a single relationship, our resentments, the times we're practicing avoidance coping with people to maintain or tiptoe around other people's emotions. These are clear indications that we need to um, be very clear with ourselves uh, what we're capable of uh, sustaining and what we're not. There's two different kinds of boundaries. One, I would say, is implicit and one is explicit. Implicit boundaries are not stated as rules. They simply are with people that feel unsafe A practice of changing the subject um, so that we are constantly um, avoiding situations that make us uncomfortable. Sometimes with abusive figures or people that have power and works uh, uh, arenas or with other people, before setting an explicit boundary... um, With stated guidelines, uh, it can be safer at first simply to know how to either excuse ourselves from a conversation, leave when a topic comes up or when a demand comes up or know how to change the subject, but to yourself get out and to get to a place that feels safer, when we feel we're in a relationship where explicit boundaries are beneficial, then we can state, clearly, I won't be working on a weekend to uh, a work supervisor or to um, somebody that we're in a new relationship. I'm not going to be uh, <laughs> uh, returning calls after midnight or 10 a 10 p.m. or uh, these kind of um, communications over texts I don't want to have. I want to save important conversations for real in-person interactions. Or with caregivers, you know, uh, I'm not going to be returning home on on Father's Day. I'll see you on, <laughs> you know, Thanksgiving or um, and so on and so forth. So um, it's important to start with one boundary at a time. Stating too many boundaries leads to confusion. And when you're setting a boundary with someone, even if your boundaries make, you know, are really about making you feel safe and other people would set the exact same boundaries, very often um, the other person will feel attacked or rejected. And they'll become either hostile or they'll become very defensive. so if you try if we try to set more than one boundary at a time, in my experience, I've found that individuals become uh, overwhelmed and even less likely to understand and be aware of the needs that we've stated. I also believe it's really important when setting boundaries to empath to emphasize. That the boundary is to sustain the relationship, not to cut or to limit the connection. You are important to me, and that's why I'm setting aside a time every Sunday evening to call you. But my work and my relationships and my my, uh, creative life is also important to me, so I won't be available outside of Sunday evenings. But I'm setting aside that time because I want to have a relationship with you. When people hear that it's not a a kind of rejection, that it's a way to sustain the relationship, often the defensiveness softens. Um, uh, another example is, um, well, that's a good enough example. I don't want to keep uh, giving more and more babble. Uh, So to bring it to a close, um, uh, boundaries are best um, a matter stated as a matter of fact, not, as I said, explained or justified. Um, In most of my experiences, uh, boundaries are most efficient when we say if we don't change the subject, I'll leave the call and I'll return when you can hear what I'm saying, or when you can understand my needs. But you're making it—we're making it clear that we are going to return, or that we want to resume the relationship with people that can be extremely overbearing or um, uh, challenging. It's good to practice to have a bookend, which is a ready-made reason why we have to get off the call or get out of an interaction, so to set essentially a time limit so that we're not fishing for reasons if we feel cornered or ambushed. Um, It's vital to keep our boundaries consistent. Letting boundaries slide just this once results always in manipulation and a bombardment of peer pressure to give up your boundaries. So there's plenty of people who set a boundary with their alcoholic friend. I'm no, I'm not going to do cocaine with you. No, I'm not going to go to the bar and drink and then their friend whines and pleads and says it's their birthday and whatever. And just this once can't you, you and the moment we give in to just this once, we might as well throw out any accomplishment we've made. A boundary only works when it is consistent throughout. In the Buddhist teachings, boundaries are everywhere. In fact, there's one sutta, the Sigalavada Sutta, which is the Buddha's teachings to uh, individuals who are not monks or nuns. They're just what's called in the Buddhist tradition, householders. And Sigalavada is a householder who asks the Buddha, what is the most important foundation for my spiritual practice? And the Buddha answers to set limitations in your relationships, um, to avoid any interpersonal situations that lead to what he calls what he called uh, ruin <laughs> which doesn't mean you're gonna wind up uh, uh unhoused or uh, it just simply means it'll lead to a, a loss of one's sense of self one sense of self respect mm-hmm. one's peace of mind and mm-hmm. so forth and so he says individuals that uh encourage you to gamble that encourage adultery, intoxication, sleeping through the day. I guess that's a no-no. Uh, sauntering the streets at unseemly hours is a big phrase the Buddha liked to trot at when he called for people setting boundaries. But especially, he says, any companion that leads to unskillful behavior or behavior you regret, regret it's important to change the nature of that relationship. So in my experience, most people who practice mindfulness and meditation are capable of setting excellent boundaries because they can speak and express their needs in a way that's clear, more calm. There, Because they can relax their internal states, they can... Um, they can essentially convey important information in a way that's clear. Uh, It's without retreating or pleading. But most of all, people who have mindfulness in their life become aware of just how many resentments or preoccupations or feelings of um, discomfort, are activated in our relationships. The more we keep our life busy or filled with intoxicants or running from one thing to another and never stop, the more likely we are to have relationships that are not healthy. The ability to stop and to really review and to ask, how do I really feel about this, is an, is an amazingly beneficial litmus test for um establishing the foundation of safety in our relationships. So that's all I can spew out. I hope something in there was vaguely useful. Um at this point we're going to do a meditation to both uh calm ourselves, to relax ourselves and then we'll be doing some mindfulness on our key relationships to see if we can Uh, discern which behaviors or situations we want to set boundaries around. So find a really comfortable seated position and you don't have to stay on camera at this point. I personally, if I wasn't teaching the class, I would turn off my video feed because I don't like being, I don't like (laughs) meditating in front of a video camera. It's frankly completely unnatural, but that's
0: the, the job I have. So find a comfortable position. It can be lying down. It can
1: be on a really comfortable sofa. It can be in a really comfortable chair. You can, if you want, be very a Buddhisty about it and sit with that upright position that discourages falling asleep. But you also can find a position that just encourages comfort and ease because we're focusing on relaxing and then uh, reviewing to know which relationships or which behaviors we need to set boundaries around, we first have to establish
0: a state of inner calm. So bring your attention inwards and find the sensations of your body breathing in and breathing out, wherever they might be most explicitly knowable, there's no right or wrong place to become aware of the breath. Now, for some people, the breath is not a comfortable event to establish
1: ease and comfort with. So if that's the case, Find another set of sensations in your body that feel really
0: comfortable. For some, it might simply be the contact sensations with the floor or an air of your body that feels cooler or warmer. For some people, might feel most comfortable in simply listening to the sounds in their direct environment, just observing the sounds arising and passing. For some people, looking at an image or an area in the room may be calming.
1: You don't have to meditate with your eyes closed.
0: For some people who can easily visualize images, Visualizing a place that is associated with comfort and safety and ease. For those who can't
1: visualize images, just repeat in one's mind maybe
0: a person or place in our life that we associate with ease. And as you stick with your anchor, whether it's the breath or sounds
1: or other body sensations or a phrase you
0: repeat, may all beings be happy, peaceful, free of unnecessary suffering, You can also use this time to relax any part of your body that feels
1: habitually clenched or tight. For me, it's often the areas of mine where my neck meets my shoulders. Sometimes I'll rotate my shoulders and drop them away from the ears. Another area I've found can be needlessly tight is my belly, so I really focus on breathing into the belly, softening with the inhalation, and even further
0: easing and relaxing with the exhalation. Sometimes I'll notice that my forehead feels oddly scrunched,
1: Or my eyes are darting about behind closed eyelids for no reason.
0: Well, whisper in my mind a soothing encouragement for them to settle. So try to scan your body and express care and
1: an encouragement to your body to Use
0: this time as a way to rest and come to a complete standstill. And we'll practice in silence for a while. There will be times where thoughts will
1: grab hold of our tension. That's actually entirely normal default mode. of The brain kicks in when we're not paying attention to the world around us. And the first thing it wants to do is focus on autobiographical thoughts about what's going to happen to me in the future or what happened to me in the
0: past. Now, this state is not the only state but it's the most stressful state for the mind. So the best way
1: out of this, falling back into this default thinking about ourselves is to have any task, counting the breath,
0: listing and naming whatever feeling is present in the body, following each sound as it arises and passes. No matter what happens in your meditation when you get hooked by a thought, that's okay. Treat it as a fun game where the goal is to get yourself unhooked like you're A fish freeing itself from a fisherman's hook and swimming away, back to safety, back to the body, back to sounds. So hopefully you've established some degree of calm or comfort that you feel like you've restored yourself to a less busy state of mind. And so for this practice, Just be aware of how
1: this feeling of calm and safety is conveyed in your body. How do you know you feel safe and relaxed right now?
0: Is it your muscles in your stomach? Is it the quality of your breath, longer on the exhalation?
1: Perhaps the emotional muscles around the eyes,
0: feel relaxed? Possibly because there's less stressful thoughts? How do you know you feel safe and in a good place? Once we have a A telltale sign in our bodies that convey safety.
1: What I invite you to do is bring up an important relationship in your life, one that is worth maintaining, but is not at times without
0: conflict. And if you can hold the person's image in your mind, or
1: if you can't visualize people's faces, that's okay. Just whisper
0: to yourself their name and just bring to mind some attribute that you appreciate about this individual. One of the reasons why you've maintained the bond for so long It's important for having a safe,
1: respectful, kind dialogue when setting a boundary to know what we appreciate about the person, why the relationship
0: is important. But now think about or ask ourselves, what is it What actions or situations keep on repeating in my mind? Where do I feel a sense of resentment or mistreatment or what behaviors really make me feel at times uncomfortable in the aftermath? Perhaps an image or an idea or a specific situation will come to mind. But whatever behaviors lead to preoccupation, feelings of being unacknowledged or taken advantage of, just know. Just know that there's a limitation or a need that's been unacknowledged. Be clear with ourselves whether explicitly or implicitly, how will go about not putting ourselves in that position again. It's important with relationships not to go to cutoff or threats, but just clear statements or acts or responsibilities we'll take. And while you imagine or think about
1: setting this boundary, see if you can soften and keep your body back in that safe state. Nothing will make it more difficult to express our needs than if we become physically
0: tense and uncomfortable when just the... Need arises, the more comfortable, relaxed we can
1: be, the more we can go into a dialogue
0: or show up for ourselves as need be. You want to imagine, if you can, the situation
1: wherein you'd set this boundary, bowing out, saying no, excusing yourself from a situation.
0: See if you can relax yourself even in the anticipation of disappointment from this other individual. It all starts from the inside out. So we could repeat this process as often as we wanted. But for the sake of time, I'm going to bring this practice to a close.